Podcast New York. What's up, Dueling Decades? This is Wax. Peace to all you guys, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Will it be the 90s or the 80s? Beanie Babies or Crack Babies? Will it be Nirvana or Madonna? Maybe Britney, maybe Whitney. Do you like new metal or new wave? Dave Grohl or Super Dave? I don't know. But now the battle begins. Dueling Decades. Let's see who wins. Dueling Decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York studios, it's another all-new Dueling Decades. The adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history. We just fight for it. Welcome back. I am Mark James, and this week we have an all-80s canon duel where I'll be boogieing down with 1984 alongside the other duelers and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, locked and loaded with 1982, say hello to Man Crush. What's up, everybody? That's right. I'm going back almost to the beginning. I have uh, all of 1982 for canon. And uh, I'm going to throw this out there because we should do this every single episode since we're on YouTube now. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit the like button, subscribe, hit the alert, do all that fun stuff. Uh, that way people can actually see these videos because we're brand new to this platform. Uh, otherwise, if you're listening to us on podcast form, go check us out on YouTube and do the same thing. But yeah, I have a uh, Canon of 1982. Also joining us on the panel and coming armed with 1986. Please welcome back the incomparable Mike Ranger. Well, hello, everybody. I do have 1986. I did actually do the research for 1986, so we're good. <laughs> and as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. And for this episode, who better than the man who literally wrote the book on the Canon Group, the author of The Canon Film Guide, Volume 1, 1980 through 1984, available now in hardcover, paperback, and digital. All rise for Judge Austin Trudick. Woo! Thank you for having me, guys. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie, after all five rounds, we'll go to a final wild card round. Remember, duelers, to like, subscribe, and play along at home. It's time for more Dueling Decades. All right, let's go right over to our guest judge for this episode, Austin Trunick, for the coin toss. This week it'll be between Man Crush and Mike Ranger. All right, what I what I have here are two promotional buttons from uh, Canon movies from 1985 and 1986. We have Life Force and Invaders from Mars, both Toby Hooper movies. Nice. Um, let's go in order of release. Let's say Life Force is heads and Invaders is tails. When you're ready, gentlemen. Mike Ranger, why don't you call it? Uh, I will go with uh, some full frontal uh, life force. <laughs> All right. It is invaders. Ooh. Damn it, just my luck. 
<laughs> All right, Man Crush, you won the coin toss. You take control of the board, and you get to select our first category. All right. Let's start with news. Go short and sweet. Let's go with news on this one. Let's go to August 19th of 1982. And I feel like this one's important because it just shows you what kind of men these were. All right. This one, it was just too canon to pass this one up. This article was by way of the Evening Standard out of London, England. It, but here's the thing. It's not your standard article. It's not your standard news article. It's a fake article that was a paid advertisement. I mean, Golan Gold, Gold and Globus were great. If no one's covering your business, cover it yourself. I mean, and that's what they did here. Uh, the title of this article is Canon to Buy Another West End Cinema. Just nine weeks following their takeover of 130 screen classic cinema theaters, which is the UK's third largest, the chairman and president of Canon Group, Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus today announced a further West End acquisition, the Columbia Cinema on London's Shaftesbury Avenue, which is the greatest name ever. Uh, with the addition, uh, Canon's classic screens have increased to 23 in the West End of London and a total of 35 in London altogether. The acquisition emphasizes their policy of increasing Canon classic screen power and giving them multi-screen availability for first-run movies. The first movie to play in this brand new updated theater where they uh, completely renovated the inside and they installed Dolby Digital Surround Sound. Remember, this is 1982, so this is big shit there. The first movie, The Last American Virgin. And they uh, they put an X-rated high school teenage comedy that takes you on a whirlwind adventure with three best friends and the girl of their dreams. Golan and Globus intend to expand the canon classic cinema chain even further to accommodate their commitment to film production. You know what? This is like super savvy of these guys at the time. If no one's going to distribute your movies, do it on your own. Kind of like this article. Nobody's going to cover you. Cover it yourselves. I just felt like this was like a total. This shows what these guys did. Like this is them in a nutshell. So that's why I went with this for my news. Wow. Yeah, that's a great article. <laughs> really. Shows... And it says right at the top paid advertisement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome all right mike ranger what did you bring for the news round well mark i uh, found an article in the desert sun of palm springs california from april 4th 1986 looks like this was uh taken out of the associated press um the article says that viacom international has agreed to pay hundreds of millions of dollars for exclusive pay tv and world syndication rights to more than 60 films by the canon group the agreement was considered a, a coup for the New York-based Viacom and two of its divisions, Showtime, the movie channel, and Viacom Enterprises. At the time of this article, Viacom had a library of 1,100 films, and president of Viacom Entertainment Group said that these motion pictures constitute the most significant addition in recent years to our library of feature films. The deal would grant exclusive airing of the Canon films on Showtime, the movie channels, uh, two national pay TV channels and Viacom's two pay-per-view paper pay-per-show viewers channel. They called shit weird pay -per -view. stuff back. Yeah, pay-per-view, <laughs> pay-per-view. What the fuck? What kind of name is this? All right. Uh, the deal would give exclusive rights to the films for up to five years and syndication rights to the films for up to 20 years. So big deal for the Canon guys getting together with Viacom. Mm -hmm. 
I'm glad I switched my new. I had two news stories, and I'll save the other one for wildcard if we get there. But that was actually part of my news story was the because they did the same thing in '82. So I'm glad that I switched because yours kind of is more than mine. But go ahead. All right. Well, my news story as well talks about the uh, the uh, strategies of Canon as well. This one is uh, we're going to go over to the Hanford Sentinel from Hanford, California, May 17th, 1984, for a headline that reads, Hollywood elite scoffs at Golan's no-frills policy. When Israeli filmmaker Menachem Golan and his cousin Yoren Globus bought Canon in 1979, it was $3 million in debt, embroiled in more than 50 costly lawsuits, and Canon's biggest hit until then had been the Happy Hooker series in Joe. Four years later, the team of Golan and Globus had $150 million invested in over 26 films, more than most major studios at the time. Now, they have a superstar stable of actors and actresses with the likes of Catherine Hepburn, Sylvester Stallone, and revenues in, eight, in 1983 of more than $62 million for, with profits of over $6 million. Now, the average budget for a major studio film is $11.5 million. Canon's projects were averaging less than $5 million. Now, how did they get all the money? Pre-sales and independent foreign buyers, along with video cassette and cable rights. That provided most of the financing, so the films actually turned a profit before they were even made. Our philosophy is no limousines, no overhead, Golan said. All the money should go on the screen. We try to build a relationship with the stars instead. And then the article kind of goes on to talk about how they built those personal relationships with the stars by tailoring to their individual needs and wants. Catherine Hepburn tried for 12 years to get a movie made called The Ultimate Solution of Grace Quigley. It was a pet project of hers about a senior citizen who puts her ailing friends out of their misery by hiring a hitman to kill them. Cannon said, yeah, we're all in. We'll go ahead, let you make that movie finally. So she came on for way less money. Roger Moore, he liked to write, so they let him adapt Sidney Sheldon's The Naked Face. Uh, and he got to star in the movie for way less money than he would have charged other studios. John Cassavetes, well, he was just happy that somebody would hire him. And uh, he said, according to Golan, that my profits will be as much as Menachem Golan is willing to give me. So Sylvester Stallone, though, he didn't care about any of those perks. He wanted cash. And they gave him 12 million bucks to do over the top. Now, the article closes by talking about the resentment by the Hollywood establishment that still plagues this company. One media report even called Golan a rug merchant. It's a smear due to envy, he says. We're bloody foreigners. We speak with an accent. We don't go to their parties. We don't smoke their cigarettes. But I don't want to remind everybody that Hollywood was founded by foreigners. And there's no crime in being good in rug merchandising, Golan said. So that's what I give you from my news article. Kind of the uh, marketing strategies of Canon, how they were able to get these big stars for way less money than they were getting otherwise. So that's shocking that you brought that because the article that I was originally going to go with, I know I said before half of it was, uh, was Mike's. The other half was yours. Oh, wow. So now I'm not even going to bring that for the wild card round because it's both of those together in 1982. <laughs> Trash. Trash. Well, let's see what our guest judge for this episode, Austin Trunick, has to say on the news round. Well, for, I, I'm going to go through each of these. Um, Man Crush, I like 
I like the article. 1982 was canon on their way up. Um, but buying theaters is really one of the things that led to their downfall later on. They took a lot of money, basically 1986, shortly after Mike's uh, article. But they took the money that they was that was meant to go into movies like Masters Universe and Superman 4, very infamously, and they spent it buying Thorny MI and movie theater chains. And then they didn't have money to you know, make make the special effects, like pay the special effects guys they wanted for uh, Superman 4, even film most of the scenes that they wanted in that movie. Um, they wound up unplugging, um, unplugging the lights when they were making Masters Universe because they couldn't afford it at the time. And that was all because they had this habit of buying more and more theaters, buying real estate when they should be spending their money on their films if that's what they wanted to be as a movie company. Let me ask you a question on that. It kind of kind of ties in. So they end up losing the MGM distribution deal right around like 84. Hadn't they mm -hmm. lost that? Do you think they they wouldn't have bought those theaters? I don't I don't think so. At that point, the one of the big parts of the Thorny MI um, purchase was that they got Elstree Studios, which is where Raiders of the Lost Ark and Empire Strikes Back and all these things were filmed. Um, they got it was a big package deal. They also got movies, um, all the Thorium Eye catalog. So that's how you get Highlander, right. uh, stuff like that in there, Link. And if they, I think they wanted all that. They, they wanted to be a major studio. And I, my feeling is that they saw those things and saw that major studios had them and that they could buy them. When, when they were a very good medium-sized studio, they, they were good at making money that way, like Mike's article by selling the video rights all over. There was a long period where before they made a film, they had already sold the foreign rights. They had sold the video rights everywhere, all the cable rights. And say they made, they, all these things added up to $10 million. If they shot a movie for $5 million, it didn't matter if anybody went to see it, if it got panned in, in theaters, they were still in the profit. They would then be able to take that profit and make more movies like that. And that going into, into Mike's article, they, uh, they were very, very smart about the pre-sales. But when they just wanted to get over that sort of hump from being this mini, mini major is what they call themselves into a major studio, they, they went about it in the wrong way. They, were, they, they weren't in the business of making movies that were studio <laughs> quality films and they just jumped in too fast. So I think they still would have bought that stuff just because it was a very kind of foolish purchase. And <laughs> all right. So it had no bearing. I was just, I was wondering that when I was doing the research and I saw all the shit they were buying, I was like, I wonder, you know, after 84, if they were like, oh shit, we have to distribute everything. So let me, right. let me, let's just buy everything so we can just have our own arm. But yeah, that totally makes sense. Mm -hmm. And looking at the history of these guys, I get that. Yeah. They still had to sell their movies. Even at that point, they had to give away the, the distribution rights to over the top, for example, as a movie they paid Sylvester Stallone, $12 million to, to appear in made him the highest paid actor in Hollywood. And they couldn't, they didn't have $12 million to give him. They didn't have any money left over from that to actually make the film. So they had to go and make a deal with Warner Brothers. And Warner Brothers ended up getting the film to distribute and had the Canon logo on it. But all the money they really got from it was just the money to make the movie at that Good point. Lord. All right. Sorry to cut you off. Go ahead. Building those That's relationships. A, yeah. <laughs> but 
Yeah, this takes us to Mark. Um, I, I have to go with his because it's a great summary of what Canon did in 84. That was really when Canon, the rest of Hollywood was starting to look at them and take them seriously. And yeah, and that article is probably probably planted by that, but by their PR people because <laughs> yeah. they liked that underdog image. They really liked that underdog image. And so I have to go with Mark's article because it is canon and in the, at their happiest times, um, really entering their their heights. Right. All right. So I pick up the first point. <laughs> I take control of the board. I get to select our next category. Uh, you know what, guys? Let's go over to the hot products round. All right. So for my hot product, we're going to go to the pages of the Daily News out of New York, New York, May 6, 1984. Now. On this, there is a three-quarters full-page ad advertisement for Magic Video. They're open seven days a week. They're on Forest Hills on Queens Boulevard in Whitestone on 14th Avenue. If you read through the ad, the first thing that grabs you is the giant photograph almost taking up half the page of uh, Sho Khashoggi from Revenge of the Ninja. It's just him on there, and it's, the, the text says, The Ultimate Video Club costs just $69. It says, Three-year membership, $69. It says, You can rent movies for half price. That's $2.50. The Magic Movie Club membership entitles you to rent any film or tape in our extensive library for just $2.50. Now, that's half the normal price. It's millions of dollars worth of prime entertainment for just pennies, the ad claims. Or you can rent for less than half the price for $1.50. Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesdays, rental price drops to $1.50. Or even less than a dollar. Magic Movie Club members can keep the tape for an extra night for just a dollar. And it goes on to list some of the other features you get for the $69 free reservations, discounts on video equipment, no deposits necessary. And then it says, they're here. Hundreds of Hollywood's greatest movies for purchase or rental. Put Revenge of the Ninja in your home library today. So Magic Video opens seven days a week, coinciding with the release of Revenge of the Ninja on VHS in the uh, probably like the first week of May. I looked at a few different articles and the, the date varied depending on what part of the country it was. Some had it for a new release at the end of May. Some articles had it for a mar marked as a new release at the beginning of May. Either way, it was all in 1984. That was my hot product, is the release of Revenge of the Ninja on VHS. You wanted to add that to your library. Coincided with the Ultimate Video Club. Only 69 bucks? No, nothing hotter than that. Good Lord. Like, I, I feel like I had this conversation with Mike the other day. Mike, do you remember when we were talking about this in the elevator? I I wish I grew up or I was born maybe like 10, 15 years earlier. So I could have owned my own like mom pop video rental store yes. and have that heyday of like the mid 80s to, you know, the late 80s before the big box stores like Blockbuster took over because it was amazing. They were those guys were making money hand over fist. There were rental stores in 7-Eleven. There was rental stores everywhere. And you could pick all this awesome shit and you can make cool stuff like that. You can have like a membership club. You can have Tuesday action nights or whatever. It's, it was like a dream job. I just grew up in the wrong 
time. Like, thanks, mom and dad. Streaming. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Mike Ranger, what did you bring for the hot products round? Well, Mark, let me tell you, because in 1986, Ocean Software Limited released Cobra, the video game, on the Commodore 64 and the ZX Spectrum in the UK. Uh, I don't have a specific release date. However, I found an article in the Guardian. I, I found an article in the Guardian, a UK paper with a list of award winners for 1986. Uh, it announced it's uh, an annual computer game bash, and Cobra won for best platform game. Uh, the article says that this is a rare example of a good game derived from a film license. These have a habit of turning out to be over-promoted rubbish, which is pretty funny because even in 1986, they were making shit video games based off of movies. Um, It's all a process of leaping up and down platforms, attempting to eradicate the muggers and rapists swarming in the streets. Although a simple design, it it is elevated by a good... By good music, graphics, and a sense of humor rarely seen in computer games. I need to play this. It's a kid's game. I need to play this. And what's even more interesting (laughs) is that this is going on in the UK where, you know, most of the video games released in in Europe that were like like Contra or something like that were given alternate names. Things were like kind of redone to be less violent. So it's kind of interesting that this game has muggers and rapists. I want to play it. For which one specifically do you want to play it for? The muggers or the rapists? Oh, oh definitely not the muggers. <laughs> <laughs> Those guys are just a couple guys trying to feed their family. Uh, the other guys are, are go-getters. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Man Crush. What did you bring for the hot products, right? I knew I'd be afraid to ask that question. I managed to get all that done without actually saying the word. You never said it, which is great. All right. So uh, thank you. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, because YouTube would just completely shock us. Yeah. All right. uh, Which we can't afford at this point. Uh, (laughs) September 20th of 1982. Since, like, I'm in such early stages of Golan and Globus at Canon, I had to go outside the box on this one. Uh, Without a doubt, though, this is the first time this particular product was hot on this show. Matter of fact, this may be the hottest hot product we've ever had. So, whoa. So, so listen up. All right. It's better than the fleshlight? <laughs> <laughs> it's equal. It's equal. You can use them equally. Oh. All right. I, I some people did. All right. So, so back so back in Mike Ray knows what my pick is. So he's playing coy right now. So back in 1979, there was this Dudley Moore movie that came out. It was named 10. And this wasn't a Canon movie, uh not a Golden Globus joint, but it did super well at the box office. And if you've never seen it, I recommend checking it out. I watched it the other night. Dudley Moore is hilarious and it. it's it's a great movie. Basically, it's about a middle-aged guy. He becomes infatuated with a woman that he sees getting married, and he basically stalks her all the way back to Mexico on her honeymoon. A lot happens in between. His neighbor makes porn. There's swinger parties. Dudley saves Sam Jones. That Sam Jones. Flash! Ah, that one. Uh, who plays the husband of the stalky. And then he ends up spending time with this woman that he's obsessing over. And one of the most memorable scenes of this movie... It begins when Bo Derek asks Dudley Moore, have you ever done it to Ravel? And of course, she she means the classical piece by Ravel Bolero. Uh, and the greatest line ever. She follows that line up 
with saying, my uncle turned me on to it. And he's like, what? Uh, well, anyhow, so like Uncle Fred, he told her that Bolero is the most descriptive sex music ever written. And with that, she walks into the bedroom. She disrobes. You can actually find that part on YouTube if you're if you don't want to watch the whole movie, because but go watch the whole movie. It's good. I won't spoil it. It's a good movie. However, this whole thing, this whole scene in particular and the beach scene with the braids and everything, this catapults Bo Derek to superstardom. Right. She becomes like the pinup goddess of the late 70s and early 80s in the process. So right around this time in 1982, Bo Derek and her husband, John Derek, they become like a package deal. All right. They recently part ways with Universal Studios. They were and this was over a movie that they were planning called Eve and that damned apple, which never got made. But Universal was like, what the fuck is this? Get out of here. And, but, you know, it's like it's surprising because it's coming off of the amazing hit that they did together, Tarzan the Ape Man, which is it's shocking that Universal dumped them after that. But that said, like Bo Derek was still highly sought after at the time. And, you know, as it goes, as the saying goes, one man's trash is canon's treasure. You know what I mean? So I give you this little news excerpt from uh, September 20th of 1982, and it says Bo Derek signs Bo Derek, who searched to stardom with her sexual exploits to Ravel's Bolero in the hit movie 10 will star this year in Bolero. This is being billed as a $20 million sensuous adventure for Golan Globus's Canon films. The blonde sex symbol will be directed by her husband, John Derrick. So this dude's just watching her bang random dudes. And there's like, there's rumors out there at the last scene. They actually had sex fucking weird. But anyhow, and then it goes on to say that the last movie they did together was Tarzan the Ape Man. Fucking classic. Uh, and so I give you the hottest product to be bought up in 1982, Bo Derek. I mean, I, here's the thing. Bolero, it didn't come out until 1984. As a matter of fact, it flopped so badly that MGM would ultimately drop Canon from their distribution arm. But hey, she's hot. That's a hot. She's the hottest product we've ever had on the show. Hotter than the fleshlight. I give you that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we're doing people as products now. Hey, it's nice. canon, bro. Hey, it's absolutely all rules Nothing out the window. Bo Derek. <laughs> <laughs> She's still hot. I saw a picture of her from um, when I was doing the research. She actually still looks good. And she's got to be like 70. Like somebody, I don't know. I got to look it up exactly, but she's got to be up there and, Maybe she had plastic surgery, but she looks great. <laughs> All right, let's throw it over to Austin Trunick for the ruling on the Hot Products round. Oh, Mark, yours gives me very fond memories of video stores. Um, that's where my love of canon, that's where my love of movies started. Oh, yeah. um, taking trips every week with my dad or mom to not just the video store, but you guys are talking about it, but we had the grocery store. You could rent them on a little spinner yeah. rack. Um, the, there was a gas station that also sold uh, fishing baits, yep. but they also had a video rack in the back that you could rent movies. And I used to rent stuff there with my mother and like in the middle of the week. And yeah, I, I miss, I really miss video stores. That's one of the weirdest things is I have very vague memories of very important things from my childhood. Um, I can't tell you what my school's classrooms or anything looks like, <laughs> what um, family members' houses looked like. 
but I can draw you a very detailed map of probably my three favorite video stores as a kid with writing down where each of the sections were, each genre. It's amazing. Dude, it was, it was a cultural event for us. It was like that that, before watching the movie, just going, we've talked about this on the show before, but going to the video store was like going to a club. It was like, all right, I'm going to this, you know, maybe you don't want partying there, but you were, getting to see the lay of the land, seeing what new stuff they had in stock, what old stuff or like how excited you would be if you went there and a movie that you actually wanted was in stock. Or if you were that guy that went up to the counter and was like, Hey, did anybody return anything? And it was like, Oh yeah, I got this copy of Cobra. You'd be like, what the, f- yeah, I'll take that. Oh, it's not rewound. I don't give a shit. Just give it to me. <laughs> yeah. It was a destination. It was somewhere you had to go. Yeah. Now it's like, Oh, I turn on Netflix. And, yeah. There's no skin in the game anymore. Like that was, that's what made it so good. Picking a movie is no longer a social activity. Nope. And you know, talking about films and discussing them and getting recommendations from other people. You know, that's what having a love for movies is all about. Mm -hmm. And you kind of lose that now. Yep. The 17th century French movie by (laughs) Canon. This has a lot of tits in it, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, so I, I I love Mark's pick, but I'm not going with that one. Um, Mike, I got to check out this Cobra game. This sounds pretty cool. Um, I haven't played that. I have played the Death Wish 3 game, which they released on computers and must have been 85 or 86. And in the game, you can play it in browsers now. They They have it all set up on emulation. So you just Google it and find it. But you can actually kill as many gang members and muggers in that in the game as Charles Bronson kills on screen and death at the end of Death Wish three. It's just the craziest body That's count. That's awesome. Yeah, but it's 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 fun. Um, it's not a very good game, but it's fun to try out for a while. But I'll have to, I'll have to look up the Cobra game and see if I can see if they've done the same thing. You can play it online nowadays. But I have to go with uh, Man Crush here. Um, the Bo Derek is someone who just fascinates me in her career, especially with her husband, John Derek, who is a much older man, sort of just a Bengali um, type guy who took her as at a very young age as a teenager and sort of model sculpted her into this actress. Um, 10 she blew up after 10 and they actually named bolero after the song in 10 as you and and her name too right yeah in a lot of the old posters i have it's Bo, and then a picture of her in the middle on the other side it's laro um just to <laughs> really capitalize on her that's probably the last time uh, article about canon and Bo Derek that ran in it ran in print was positive because yeah. they got in a very big and nasty fight yep. in all of the trade papers after that. Yeah, I found a lot of them in 1984. <laughs> a lot they they are oh from both sides just ripping each other, and it's Bo uh, Bolero is probably one of my least favorite movies in the first volume of the canon film guide to actually watch even though it's you have to watch it once if you haven't because it's crazy it's Bo Derek <laughs> and her best friend and her sort of babysitter George Kennedy Oscar yeah where George Kennedy hey listen he's he's great in every disaster film so they had to put him in this so it fits right <laughs> yes they, they go on this adventure around the world to 
help her find somebody to take her virginity, which is believable. Crazy. That's that's the concept that they took to canon and canons. Yes, let's. How much money do you need? And they made a. They didn't make another film till uh, 1989, I believe it was, um, called Ghosts Can't Do It. It was the last film that Bo Derek and John Derek made together, and that's also a very weirdly fascinating movie. It's Bo uh, Bo Derek plays a young woman who's married to a much older man. He dies, and the whole plot of the film is her going around and trying to find the perfect body because he comes back as a ghost. <laughs> and the only thing their their relationship is still great, but ghosts can't do it, as the movie title says. So she he has to possess these men so they can have sex with her, and it's <laughs> sort of the weird jealousy that's happening because he's the ghost possessing this all these very handsome actors as they bang his wife <laughs> Don't, for real. And our, our, yeah. Yeah. And our, our, our last president was he, he got his Razzie award for that movie. He plays one of <laughs> O'Derek's husband's uh, business rivals. So That's awesome. Yeah. I've worth, never seen that. Wait, what up. is it called again? It's called ghosts. Ghosts can't do it. <laughs> I'm totally going to look that up. <laughs> yeah it's it's if if you're into the the Bo Derek filmography that's a that's a bizarre one that needs to be seen but I have to go with that the uh the product of Bo Derek <laughs> yeah I mean yeah. not the movie Bolero and it's it's just signing because you know how canon was and they wanted to add all these people to their kibbutz they're you know they're this committee that they had of all these different you know actors you know like Charles Bronson and and everybody else that they had that they would just keep for movie after movie. So she was supposed to be part of this. And it just, obviously, like you said, it just didn't work out, but that movie is crazy. I watched it for the first time the other night and I told Mike, I didn't even know what I was in for. And it's actually, I, it took me a while to find it. It's actually on YouTube and somebody posted it like not that long ago. So it might still be up there if you really want to see it. It's so weird. Like the movie, the whole the guy is a bullfighter. He gets kicked in the balls, and she still has sex with him. Spoiler: Don't worry about it. I'm not ruining any of the story <laughs> for that movie. It's all it's just nude Bo Derek through the whole movie. That's that's what. Can you we get. watch it with the sound off? Of course. Okay. It's actually probably more enjoyable if you watch it with the sound uh, off. There you go. Actually, no, because some of the dialogue is so bad it's funny. Like when she's talking, because George Kennedy's a real actor. So like when she's talking to George oh, yeah. Kennedy, he's really acting and it's just bogus coming. Anything coming out of her mouth, you're like, I don't buy it. Like she's a virgin. How old was she at the time? Like mid 20s? Like, OK, I don't I don't buy this at all. <laughs> but yeah, like uh, like Austin said, if you've never seen it, it's worth watching just for the goofs. Uh, but just be prepared to be shocked because it is pretty shocking. All right, Man Crush, you pick up a point. We're heading into our final one-point round. You have control of the board. What category are we going with next? All right, I'm going to go with something that has been mentioned before. We'll just do it now and get it out of the way. Let's go to television. All right, so let's go uh, September 24th of 1982. And at this point, like picking television again, I'm so early on that it's a little tough for canon in 1982. I didn't want to get anything that predated Golan and Globus taking over the canon group. So I really only had about a year's worth of movies that I could possibly 
that could possibly make their way onto television. Matter of fact, the movie that I found, it was actually still playing in drive-ins around the country when I found it on television. Uh, but thank God, newspapers.com, one of our great sponsors, they have a fantastic search feature. And I was able to go through and search for several movies to see if they were playing on television. And lo and behold, our favorite late night cable company. Everybody knows where I'm going. Cinemax was playing this movie right when you figured they would. Uh, we called it Skinemax for a reason. And they aired this one <laughs> at 11.50 p.m. on September 24th, 1982. And according to your book, Austin, uh, which is amazing, by the way, if, if you're well, thank a, you. Yeah. If you're a fan <laughs> of Canon, uh, one of our listeners, uh, Eric, he turned us on to this. Thank you, Eric. He was like, you got to yeah. check out this book. And he sent us thank pictures you. or whatever. <laughs> and uh, and you actually you mentioned this in your book. And uh, this happens to be the first Canon movie released to theaters under Golan and Globus. And the first date that I can find in those newspapers in theaters was May 30th of 1980. Uh, this is not a hit by any means. And it's the third and final movie of the series. Uh, while this, uh, it, well, this, it wasn't a hit movie. It was the first Golan and Globus new venture into Hollywood. So I figured it would be important. And most likely with it being on television, this is also probably the first first of the canon movies under Golan and Globus to make it to television at that time. We're talking about 1982. I'm looking at September. I don't see any other movies that could possibly make it. I was searching. This was the first one I found. So if you're in the mood for guilty pleasures, movies based on books, campiness, tales of revenge, satire, prostitutes, pool orgies, Adam West, stinging one-liners, sleazy movie studios, sexploitation, Jack Lemon's son, Chris, getting it in, accidental sexcapades in the dark, car chases and excessive nudity, then tune into Skinamax at 11.50 p.m. EST for The Happy Hooker Goes to Hollywood. <laughs> One of the early, early, early Golden, Glo Golden Globus classics. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Mike Ranger, what did you bring for the television round? Well, Mark, uh, in the UK, there was a arts-based documentary series that broadcasted on BBC One that ran from 1967 into 2003. I found a TV listing from the Evening Standard, a newspaper in the greater London area. So everyone, grab your teacups for May 23rd's pick of the day at precisely 10.20 of, of all times. Uh, <laughs> an all-new omnibus. Uh, tonight's episode, titled The Last Moguls, uh, peers, down the, peers down the barrel of canon films whose dramatic impacts on the British movie business has caused shell shock in some quarters. Uh, Omnibus uh, traces the extraordinary graduation of canon's cousins Golan and Globus from small movies such as Hot T-Shirts to the Howitzer League. Uh, so yeah, it was basically just a TV documentary on uh, canon films and what they were doing and it's uh, pretty interesting because I think in 86, they're pretty much at the the height of their movie output. They put out like 60-something movies that year. Yeah, 86 was peak uh, Golden Globus canon. They had so many movies in production, almost a almost a movie in theaters every, every week. Um, it's just 
just crazy the amount of stuff that they had put out then. And it was right before everything went went to hell. So <laughs> <laughs> we got a problem. What do we do? Just keep making movies, make more movies, and we'll uh, we'll eventually make the money back. <laughs> Such an amazing gambling story. gambling uh, mindset. I can't wait. Like, how far are you into volume two? I am editing right now. I am neck deep in editing. So um, it's it's close. I'm really hoping for the have it out by the end of this year. But I, when I had started writing this project, I had written it basically out of order. It was going to be my 50 favorite canon movies. And that obviously I couldn't stop there. Once I learned more and more and talked to more people and just started finding, seeking out all these films. And so, yeah, it's, it, I had a good head start on the second volume before I took the first one out to publishers. I can't wait to read it. That That's like the well, one period I don't think I know enough about. And then... Like Mike said, I think I've seen that documentary and I think you can find that one on YouTube. The one that you're talking mm -hmm. about that was on television, but like the go-go boys and uh, electric boogaloo, those are great documentaries. If you guys have never, if this is your first venture into what the hell is Canon, you're, if you're hitting this episode now and you read it and you're like, you thought this was about like medieval fucking weaponry <laughs> or something, uh, Maybe like dig a little bit deeper if you're interested in, in the movies and stuff that we're talking about and you can watch these documentaries and get it, Austin's book and everything. It's it's an amazing story. And I, I wish there were more stories about like some of these other companies. Mike and I were talking about this the other night, like uh, D. Lauren Ice Entertainment and like DG and like Orion film. Like there's so many like these little would you call them before mini majors, mini majors, mini majors that were around. But I think Canon just they had this aura about them that the stories are just so amazing. So that's what like mm. really like when Eric told me about the book, I was like, oh, I gotta, OK, I got to I got to do this now. And uh, the book is amazing. But sorry. Go ahead. Thank uh, you. Thank you so much. Go ahead, Mark. All right. All right. So my television selection. Uh, you know, March 2nd, 1984, Canon released a movie whose original title was going to be My Beautiful Shiksa. That didn't last. They retitled it to Over the Brooklyn Bridge, and it was directed by the man himself, Menachem Golan. Uh, it starred the great Elliot Gould, Burt Young, Shelley Winters, and fresh off of Taxi, Carol Kane. That same year, Carol Kane would guest star in another series, from uh, Taxi Creator Jim Burroughs. I give you Season 3, Episode 12 of Cheers, titled A Ditch in Time, originally airing December 20th, 1984. This episode is fantastic. In this one, Carol Kane gives a brilliant performance as Amanda. Now, she's a friend of Diane's that tries to date Sam. Now, the twist here is Diane met this friend while she was self-admitted to a mental institution. Come to find out, Amanda is just a little obsessive when it comes to men, and a little suicidal when things go wrong. Hilarity ensues when Sam finds this out from Diane. Uh, also in this episode, Norm is trying to have a baby with his wife Vera, and it seems like everybody's name from the bar is on the list, except for Cliff, of course, because who would name their son Cliff? And in this episode, Coach reveals that his nickname, Coach, was given to him by one of his friends and that he always thought it it was because he never flew first class. 
and had nothing to do with the fact that he was a baseball coach. So Carol Kane's character of Amanda, she gets over Sam really quick by the end of this one when she finds out that Sam is Ralph. Now, Ralph is the man that Diane talked about in all those therapy sessions when they were in the uh, mental institution together. So, And then we learn some really disturbing details about Sam and how bad of a boyfriend he is. Now, for Christmas, he got Diane a set of steak knives. She got the flu that year. He never bothered to go visit her. He got her second-hand flowers for Valentine's Day. And then uh, after their very first night they spent together, she wanted to spend the day together the next day. He went to a football game. And uh, then on his birthday, Diane cooked Sam a seven-course meal, and Sam stopped for a burger on the way home. So I give you Over the Brooklyn Bridge with Carol Kane and then Cheers <laughs> with Carol Kane all the same year, 1984. Oh, all right. Well, Carol Kane is amazing. I love her. Um, she's she's one of the best things in Over the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah. But I, was, I, I never really got into Cheers. I, I, it would be on and I would watch it, but it's nothing I ever continued watching or followed or made it a point to appointment television. Don't know what you're missing out on, man. Uh. <laughs> Mark masturbates to Cheers. <laughs> I you said you wouldn't tell. Um, uh, a man crush. We uh, happy hooker. Happy hooker is uh goes Hollywood is, yeah. It's a it's a great first splash from Canon. The first thing they chose to produce with their new Hollywood studio that they had bought is of course a threequel to a series they hadn't started and really no one was rushing for it for an, for another one anyway but that that's a movie it's got a lot of a lot of fun actors adam west who really was at a point in his career where he was appearing in anything he could that he didn't have to wear the batman suit right um but he's he's very funny in that one so happy hookers happy hookers a fun watch i'm not surprised it was playing on cinemax in the middle <laughs> of the night that seems like the perfect place for it but i have to go with mike's here um the last moguls if you're of any interest in Canon, that's some of the best footage, vintage footage from inside their offices. It was right after they bought this big and new fancy office building. And there are so many just hilarious details in it. You've got Golden Globe is having this big executive meeting and everyone's eating out of like styrofoam, off styrofoam in it. Because <laughs> like the article, they don't put the money, they put all the money on the screen. They're not going to, they're, they're, they're going to, you're going to eat off a of styrofoam if you have to dine with the heads of the company. There's footage of Yoram Globus approving um, Delta Force toy machine guns for kids. <laughs> uh, just going through them like a toy manufacturer, just showing them off. That's and a hot product. It's, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a footage of a giant party they had in 1986. And it's really to yeah. celebrate their yep. success. And what's amazing is, is it's a black tie party. And it's in the parking garage, yep. <laughs> which is the most canon place to throw a big black tie gala. But all their kibbutz was there. Everybody was there. Yeah, yeah. Showed. You got Bronson, Norris. You have uh, Michael Dudikoff's there at that point. Yep. It's, yeah, it's it's a just that footage alone. is just, It's fun to go and try to peek at who you can see in the background, who came to this fancy party, parking garage party. 
It was and, a brand yeah, new parking to, garage, though. Yeah, yeah. And I've talked to people who were at that party, and I always have to try to get, you know, what was it like? You know, just because that stands out so such a peak part of canon history for me, just that one moment, the parking garage shebang. But yeah, yeah, I have to go with Last Moguls. And you also mentioned uh, other canon documentaries. If anybody hasn't seen Mark Hartley's uh, Electric Boogaloo, The Wild Untold Story of Canon Films, it's wonderful. And it's it goes through the history of canon in you know, just your 90 minutes, but it covers so much. There's so much great footage. There's people telling amazing stories. It's a great place to start. Um, just to just to learn the, what what can what the company was sure. about. Yep. Before you decide whether you want to write read 500 pages in the first <laughs> volume of my book, followed by progressively larger volumes in the future. I think that one that was the more fun one. I think uh, in watching them, and I just rewatched them again this past week. Felt like Go Go Boys is a little bit more propaganda ish, like very mm -hmm. pro canon. There was nothing bad said about them, and then. <laughs> When you watch uh, Electric Boogaloo, what, what's the exact name of that one? Electric Boogaloo, the wild untold story of canon films. All right. I didn't want anybody to just come up with uh, Breaking 2. But uh, that one has great <laughs> stories from both sides, good and bad, which makes it fantastic. And there's no subtitles, which Go-Go Bo <laughs> Go Boys is a lot of subtitles. Yeah. Go-Go Boys had actually when Golden Globus had found out that somebody was making a documentary about them, they rushed and produced their own documentary, which actually beat it out. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was specifically made in response to them finding that people were being interviewed for electric boogaloo. They, they go and make their own, which is just crazy. It's the, the most canon thing. One of the last things that Menachem Golan was associated with. Yeah. Because he, he, he died like, right. I think that was released in 2014. I think he died the same year. Mm hmm pretty sad but you'll uh globus is still alive uh i don't know if he ever does podcast i would love to get him on oh that my, would be that would be a dream right there. it would be gold would be you amazing. wouldn't know if you're getting bullshit stories but i don't even think it would matter no i wouldn't care <laughs> like just lie <laughs> to me amazing lie, yeah. just make oh, up no. whatever story sell me <laughs> yeah. whatever movie you have right now i just want to know what movie it is all right, duelers. Well, this game is all tied up, and we're heading into our first two-point round. Mike Ranger, you have control of the board. Where are we going? Music or movies? Well, I uh, think we're going to go with music, Mark. All right. So released in 1986 by IRS Records was a soundtrack uh, that Discogs.com's claims falls under the alternative rock, new wave, psychobilly style. Uh the music, much like this motion picture, certainly has a style all its own and, like its predecessor, is completely different from the first film. I give you the official motion picture soundtrack to Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. The album was released on both vinyl and cassette, featuring 10 tracks from the likes of Lords of the New Church, The Cramps, Timbuk 3, Stuart Copeland, Concrete Blonde, Torch Song, and Oingo Boingo, who seemed to find themselves on a few soundtracks in the mid-1980s. So drop the needle on this 1986 sound journey while you still can, because like Oingo Boyko says, no one lives forever. <laughs> All right, Man Crush, what did you bring for the music round? All right, so let's go to July 30th of 1982. And here's a movie we've talked about it on the show before. Matter of fact, we've had the star of this movie on Dueling Decades 
several times over the years. So go check those out. Um, I don't know. The episodes are in our catalog, I think, last summer. You can find them all on DuelingDecades.com. Exactly. Go to DuelingDecades.com. There's a search function there, and you'll know what I'm talking about by the end. I'm sure uh, Mark already knows where I'm going with this. But anyway, uh, when it comes to teenage sex comedies, the 80s were like the golden age. And it's sad because we'll never have another period like that ever again. Honestly, like teenage sex comedy like that in itself is a thing of the past. Like after American Pie, that whole franchise, the genre is basically flushed entirely. And I watched some of the teen comedy movies in nowadays, like with my daughter, and they're so out of touch with being a teen that it's just like, what? But that being said, like a lot of the teenage sex comedies of the golden era that we're talking about are pretty outlandish and also out of touch. But this particular movie was probably the most authentic of those teenage sex comedies. At least I think so. I, I think a lot of people don't see it that way. But this film, it was basically what being a teen was all about in the 80s. And the star of the film herself, she told, she echoed those sentiments to us when she was on the episode. She said the same thing. That, that's what growing up in the 80s was like. So, like, one of the things uh, that put the cousins, uh, you know, talking about uh, Menachem Gola and Yarm Golovis, that put them on the map, both globally and monetarily, was the movie Lemon Popsicle. And just to put it in perspective, in 1978, there were roughly 4 million people living in Israel. And that was when Lemon Popsicle was released. And they sold roughly 1.3 million tickets to see that movie. So I'm I'm not a mathematician, but that's nearly like what one quarter of the entire population yeah. of Israel at that time. That's fucking insane. And to this day, it appears Lemon Popsicle is the highest grossing Israeli movie of all time. I couldn't find anything else. I don't know. I'm sure they don't have like a million movies coming out of there, but movie killed it. So in spite of that success, this movie it gained lots of attention and made lots of money outside of Israel. However, it never gained much traction in the United States. So anyhow, like Golan and Globus, they knew they needed to get to Hollywood. They used uh, copious amounts of money that they made from Lemon Popsicle. Of course, they purchased a struggling Canon group. And then they decided to redo Lemon Popsicle for the American audience. And that movie would be called Last American Virgin. And of course, who I was talking about before was Diane Franklin. So Karen, or Karen, <laughs> which is her name in the movie, but uh, Karen, they bring in uh, Boaz Davidson. They bring him back to direct this movie. And why not? I mean, the movie is basically about his life growing up. So they basically do like this shot for shot American version of Lemon Popsicle. That said, like the one big difference is the time period. So instead of it taking place in the 50s or 60s, which I'm not sure of in Lemon Popsicle, now the movie is going to take place in the 80s. So instead of like Lemon or Lemon, instead of Little Richard or Bobby Vinton or Paul Anka, they brought in a whole new onslaught of like 80s new wave into the mix. And the funny thing is, like knowing what I know about the cousins, having such an amazing soundtrack, it shocks me that they did this, that they paid the money to have this. Because look, the Last American Virgin, the soundtrack features Tommy Two Tone, The Police which is a great track. 
Devo, Oingo Boingo, The Cars, The Who. And who can have? You cannot even have an abortion scene without you 2 in it. And they did this. They had you 2 I will follow, playing in the background during, during an abortion scene. I mean, you can't do it. You, if you don't have them, you can't do an abortion scene. It's amazing, and the soundtrack's amazing, and it's the soundtrack for Last American Version. I mean, I'm sure I left people out of here. I mean, let's see. Uh, Phil Seymour was the other person. Gleaming Spires, The Waitresses, and The Fortune Band. But out of those 10 tracks, and I think, uh, Austin, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if I read this in your book or not, but was it Oingo Boingo that they got sued by, that they had to like pull it off, or it was only on the VHS I know there was one song that was only on the VHS. Right, right. Um, I don't remember offhand. It, was, it might have been Ungo Boingo, but. Which is funny if it was, because yeah. then they come back to them to do Mike's soundtrack. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, they were on the Dangerously Close soundtrack as well. Um, I think they do everybody's soundtrack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which happened. Wasn't Oingo Boingo your first concert, Mark? Uh, no, no, that was Wang Chung. Oh, uh, same shit. <laughs> Sounds like a dead man's party. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. So for my music selection, it's no mystery to Man Crush and to Mike Ranger what I'm going with here. This, this is such an important album for, for me personally. You know, this was the album that introduced me to hip hop. It's one of the first albums that I had completely memorized, you know, and after this album, it would lead me to other bands like the Beastie Boys and LL Cool J and just kind of discovering the complete New York City break scene, which for a fat white kid growing up in northern Maine, that's a completely different universe. So this album would teach me that out on the streets, you don't survive by being weak. And much like here on Dueling Decades, there's no stopping us. No one does it better. This is an album that always reminded me that 99 and a half, it won't do. I give you Break In, the original motion picture soundtrack. Now, I'm not sure how this cassette tape got in my possession. I believe it was one of my sisters that I kind of just took and I wore this thing out. So you couldn't even read the text on the tape. It was just a plain white tape. So this album con contains the first performance on an album by Ice-T. Now, previously, he had only released like 12-inch singles. So let's take a look at the track listing. It starts off on side A with the one-hit wonder of Ollie and Jerry. Fantastic. They have Breakin'. There's No Stopping Us, the title song from the movie, of course. It reached number nine on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 and number five in the U.K. Their second single... For the sequel, uh, Electric Boogaloo, that didn't fare as well. So, And then uh, we go to the Barkays with Freak Show on the dance floor. Hot Streak, Body Work. Carolyn Towns with 99 and a half. An amazing track. Ollie and Jerry gets another song on this one with Showdown. Uh, well, let's, let's flip it over to side B. Uh, 3V, Heart of the Beat. We have Street People by Firefox. Uh, Reflex with Cut It. And then the feature song for this album, Rufus and Shaka Khan with Ain't Nobody, which reached number one on the R&B charts and number 22 in the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. This is a song for me personally, I always go back to. It is one of my all-time favorite jams. And then it ends with Chris the Glove Taylor and Ice-T with Reckless just cutting it up. Now, 
this album. It inspired me at a very young age to enter a breakdancing competition, despite the fact that I don't actually know how to breakdance. And the result was my shoe flying off into the crowd during my very first move attempt. Standing O. Yeah. <laughs> I give you Breakin', the original motion picture soundtrack. And I have uh, my copy of Breakin' here nice. on VHS. So. Very nice. Oh, boy, these are three really good ones in this category. Three really up, up there in the upper echelon of canon soundtracks. Um, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 soundtrack is, it's a very fun one. It's also very expensive nowadays. If you look it up on yes, Discogs, the uh, cassette tape just the last week sold for, I think, $35 on eBay. Damn. And the, I've never seen the the actual vinyl for under 100 which is Yeah, yeah the vinyl's around 100 I think the cheap one is 100 Yeah. And it's damaged. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's, it's a gap in my Canon soundtrack collection that, I can't justify it, <laughs> but it, it makes me, it also makes me a little bitter um, thinking that I probably won't ever own the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 soundtrack on vinyl. But yeah, th these are all three great ones. This is a hard category to choose, but um, I have to roll out TCM2 because of that as much as I enjoy the movie and the songs on its soundtrack. Uh, Man Crush, Last American Virgin is incredible and yeah canon put money into this soundtrack and one of the things that they also sat on the film for a little bit yep like not not it was long, like two canon. years or so like a year and a half yeah 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 so by the time it came out some of these artists had gotten even bigger u2 is the main example is back when they when they got them for the film they weren't very well known and they were much bigger by the time. So they they even advertised the soundtrack on the front of the VHS. Yep. If we're going for props here, you have all the, uh, um, the side listed, all of the artists who are on it. And yeah, those songs are, the songs are great. Um, the Gleaming Spires is probably the, one of the lesser known bands on the soundtrack, but they have, are you ready? Eddie? Are you ready for the sex girls? Yeah, thank you for singing it so I didn't have to. Mark can add it to my soundtrack. I've been singing it in my head this whole fucking segment. Yeah, that's an excellent soundtrack. And reused in Revenge of the Nerds. And I yes. there was another movie that used it too, I believe, that I heard it before. Yeah, that's where I know it from, is from the Revenge of the Nerds soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, that another band that, yeah, the teen sex comedies. And you, there's actually... I have to promote somebody else's book. Um, there's a book called Teen Movie Hell by Mike McPadden, who sadly passed away last year, oh. but was... It's actually uh, sitting right behind me. Oh, it's oh, such... Right over... Yeah, that's yeah. the one you were talking oh, let me, about. Let me grab it. Hold on a second. Yeah, that's an incredible, incredible book. And it goes into the entire history of the teen sex movies and it's great reviews. Yeah, one hell of a cover. And Mike was very nice to... He blurred, he blurred with a Canon film guide and gave me some advice. So he was someone who I really admired because he, he had an earlier book called Heavy Metal Movies that I had fallen in love with. And it came out right around the time I was like, I'd, I'd love to write a book about cult cinema of some sort of canon was on, on my head, but I didn't think anybody would read it in the era of the internet when anyone would go on Wikipedia or IMDb and get stories. I just didn't think there was a market for a cult film guide i dude there's there there really is because like you can't and we say this on the show a lot you can't rely on the shit that you read if you go to wikipedia it's good to like yeah. give you a direction and you're like all right well here's right. sort of where i'm looking but you can't go there for your facts because 
they're you're not going to get a lot of them. There'll be a lot right. of bullshit. The, the greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing people that IMDb <laughs> trivia was was real. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of it isn't. That's and that's something I, I I like to do with this book is try to clarify a lot of stories yeah. because a lot of them are crazier than the real story, or a lot of them are not as they they've been embellished. Especially if Menachem was involved, Menachem Dillon <laughs> would uh, make his change his stories. The uh, about how he met Jean Claude Van Damme, and you can read interviews with Menachem over the years and each story gets crazier and crazier. What's the and... most accurate story you heard of that? Cause I've heard like three different ones. I've heard that he, he actually kicked him. I heard that uh, he just did the kick, the split kick. I heard that he brazed his head. <laughs> like what's the, what's the story that you know, that's most accurate. Yeah. Well, it's, it's not as exciting as Menachem's version where he's holding the two bowls of soup and he's a waiter in a restaurant <laughs> and kicks it over his head while not spilling the soup. That's that's the version that Menachem, it, it, he continued to embellish until it became that. Um, the the true story is really he just hung out at the Canon offices trying to get a meeting. And when Menachem came in, he recognized them. He had been in some of the Canon movies, Break-In especially right. as a, like a background extra. Great dance. He did the trick. And Menachem finally, after he saw these kicks, he's like, fine, fine. This guy's been trying to get a meeting with me. Come on, come on up to my, my office. And Van Damme starts doing the splits in his office, takes off his shirts, making the muscles and stuff. <laughs> well, Menachem gone sitting at his desk. And at the time Menachem had the script for Bloodsport, which he was not really rushing to get made, but he took the script out and was finally found a way to kill two birds with one stone. Fine. We'll sign you up, make this movie. <laughs> and <laughs> That's how it happened. He never, Menachem never thought Bloodsport would be a, be the hit, huge, huge major. <laughs> now, is it true the part where, um, because what I heard about that movie originally was, so they had it done, they finished it and it was shit. And like uh, John claude Van Damme took it back and edited it himself and recut he, the movie together. He went into the Canon offices and begged them to let him help. And he sat down with one of their house editors and they recut the movie together. So he was, yeah, very involved with the editing wow. of Bloodsport himself. The, the, the fight scenes, particularly just making them more visceral and exciting and adding a lot of the stuff where you see the punch and then you see it at a slightly different speed or like changing a slightly different angle. Um, yeah. So yeah, Van Damme deserves a lot of credit for really making that movie that what it is this this classic amazing because yeah he's he deserves credit as an editor absolutely but Glad yeah. that's true <laughs> <laughs> yeah but yeah that's last american version great soundtrack but i have to go with breaking right. not just because of your story i mean the personal connection is awesome i was i was going to ask while you were talking about it i, I was going to ask you if you ever tried break dancing because I think anyone who was a kid or young tried. in the eight Mark hasn't walked point. since he tried. He's in a wheelchair. No. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you you listing those songs, I could hear every one of them in my head singing. Oh, yeah. So that's that's the one that connects with me the most, and I have to go with the break and soundtrack. All right. So I jump out to a two-point lead, heading into the final movies round. I'll start this one off. So just like the back of the VHS box for this movie says, I want you to imagine a world 
where the living are possessed by mysterious demonic spirits from the past. Imagine a world where spectacular feats of strength are matched only by bone-cracking stunts. Now enter your imagination and the world of Ninja 3, The Domination. Uh, released September 14th, 1984, an evil ninja attempts to avenge the death from beyond the grave by possessing an innocent woman's body. So let's go to the Hattiesburg American in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, October 18th, 1984, for a review by Kenneth Polarski. Ninja 3, The Domination, shows how bad a film can be. The press kit for Canon for the Canon Group's new film, Ninja 3 The Domination, calls it a fun-filled blending of genres, fusing mysterious powers from beyond with the blood-curdling exorcism, bone-cracking martial arts, and hair-splitting action, and some pretty nifty special effects. The above description could qualify as the greatest piece of fiction ever written. It does not imply in any way, shape, or form to Ninja 3 The Domination. To put it quite simply, Ninja 3 stinks. Lucinda Dickey, she struggles valiantly to give her character some depth and interest, but it's a losing battle. The producers, Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus, began their Ninja series in 1980 with Enter the Ninja. They followed that film with Revenge of the Ninja in 1983. And now, in 1984, they have subjected the viewing public to Ninja 3, The Domination. Mercifully, there will not be a Ninja 4, but don't count on it. Ninja 3, The Domination is a truly inferior film and should be avoided. It's rated R for violence. So I give you Ninja 3, The Domination. Don't believe the hype. This is a really fun movie to watch. And you know what? Lucinda Dickey's fantastic in it. She did this along with, she had Break-In and then Break-In 2. And she kind of did this one in the middle. And it's fantastic. You got to go watch it. It got me addicted to V8. Yeah. Oh, woo, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I started, I didn't drink it though. I just poured it on my chest. Yeah. It's the most sexiest use of V8 <laughs> juice in any movie in cinema history. Absolutely. Although I, I have one major complaint about it that this guy didn't even bring up. The movie drives me nuts and I have a really hard time watching it because the main villain wears an eye patch. Oh, I thought you were going to say the guy's hairy back. No, no, it's the <laughs> eye patch. Okay. Now what he uses for an eye patch is the, is the guard from a katana. So it has a nice little cutout in it that perfectly fits a blade. So the whole time you're watching the movie, you're like, oh, God, I so want to stick something in there. <laughs> it's so distracting. It, it, of course, it never happens in the movie. Spoilers. But yeah, so go check it out. It's fantastic. I don't know. The only thing that bothered me was uh, she moves really fast with her boyfriend, the cop, the hairy back yeah. guy. Moves very like fast. Like relationship wise? Yeah, it's like, is- it's like, whoa. Like he's about ready to move in after like a week. You're like, dude, what? Like, you need to back off a little bit, bro. Like, he's like, it's him, though, not her. Like, it's okay. Like, she's possessed, so it's fine. It's him, like, pushing. Like, dude, you just met, bro. Like, back up. <laughs> like, shave your back or something, because that shit is, you look like a bear. That bothered me. Like, they should have got that dude some wax. Maybe that would have helped. 
But the movie's great. All right, Mike Ranger, what do you have for the movies round? Well, Mark, uh, released on February 14th, 1986, was the Chuck Norris and Lee Marvin action film, The Delta Force. Uh, Golan himself directs Lee Marvin's final film appearance, where an elite special forces unit has to, res- has to rescue hostages after a group of terrorists hijack American Travelways Flight 282. Also starring George Kennedy, Shelley Winters, Robert Forrester, and even Liam Nielsen makes an uncredited <laughs> appearance. Uh, the film was loosely based on the hijacking of TWA Flight 847 and was originally going to star Chuck Norris and Charles Bronson until Bronson backed out of the project and was replaced by Marvin. The film debuted at number three and grossed 17, over $17 million during its run and spawned two sequels, though Part 3 does not feature Chuck Norris. Instead, we get Chuck's son, Mike Norris. Uh, <laughs> come see The Siege, The Ordeal, The Rescue, The Delta Force. Also, uh, the L.A. Times gave it a uh, two-star rating. Ooh, pretty good for a canon movie. Yeah. Yeah, I thought I thought so. <laughs> That's generous. Yeah. All right, Man Crush, what are your offerings on the movies round? All right, so let's go February 19th, 1982. And, uh, you know, since he wrote a book purely on canon, obviously in this round we weren't going to stun Austin with any of these selections. <laughs> I mean, most likely we're not going to stun any of you either if you're into canon. Maybe if you're not, we are, but... I'm sure, Austin, uh, you'll be able to provide a little bit more information each one of these movies, give people a little bit of more of a deeper dive into canon. But anyway, uh, my family owned this, an RCA disc, and we talk about this all the time, that my, they were just like degenerates to let me watch whatever the fuck I wanted. But <laughs> this was one of the few movies that my parents weren't cool with me watching as a young boy. So it definitely didn't hit the Man Crush 5 now. We actually upgraded it to since last week. But uh, that's not to say that I never watched this growing up. It was on cable all the time throughout the 80s. So I definitely saw it. Just didn't see it on RCA disc much. Uh, But when you look at like the Canon Film Library as a whole, this movie, it's not their most successful movie. However, this is probably their first movie to teeter that line between the previous schlock and becoming a recognized player in Hollywood. Uh, at the box office, this movie, it brought in roughly $16 million domestically, which is roughly $44 million in 2021. And it did much better on the international market. But surprisingly, I could not find any figures of that anywhere. I just heard that they did. <laughs> it did a lot better. <laughs> in a lot of documentaries and everything else. But here's the thing. Like Canon didn't make much money off this movie at all, but the legitimacy that they gained was worth more than that bottom line. And on top of that, this spurned off a series of three more sequels. One of which Austin already talked about with a video game. And basically it made a star or made the star of the movie, a household name in the process. Not to say the star wasn't recognized, but aside from the original movie of this one, he was mostly known as a supporting guy. He was in a lot of like Westerns and things like that. He was never the guy until the original came out. And then of course this is like eight years later. And then, you know, then we get a whole lineage, but we kind of lucked out on this movie as did Canon. Cause in typical Canon fashion, all the things we've been talking about this entire episode, they, they put into trades there or they, they put an ad in trades 
with a full page ad for Death Wish 2 with coming soon Death Wish 2. And uh, knowing canon, it was probably a double page ad just because that's the shit that they did. The problem was this Dino Dealeronitis, who we talked about before with like DEG. He, he produced the original and he still owned the rights, not canon. So Dino's lawyer contacts Canon and he's like, what the fuck? Like, what are you doing? And uh, basically what happens in the process is Canon is forced to purchase the rights to the movie or be sued. And this is like kind of all over the place because I've heard it in documentaries. I've read it in different places. I don't have an exact figure, but the one that I've come across more times than not is $200,000 that they paid for the rights to Death Wish or to the series. Mm -hmm. So they purchased the movie and then they're like, all right, we need the original guy. We need Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson. Awesome. I knows this. I'm, I think I read it in your book too. He didn't want to do it. He was like, eh, I don't, I, I'm not, I have no interest in doing a sequel. So they were like, well, fuck, how are we going to get, how are you going to do it? So they, they're like, we got to open the checkbook. So they already paid $200,000. Now they had to pay Charles Bronson a million and a half dollars to do this movie which at the time is 1982 this is like mega bucks this is like you're paying george clooney to do a movie in 2021 so they they give him this money so now they're like all right well we got this movie uh we have charles bronson uh well you know what menachem's gonna have to direct it we'll just have menachem direct it we'll save some money menachem will direct it so they they tell charles bronson hey menachem is gonna direct this movie and he's like nope not gonna do it so he basically pushes for them to bring Michael Winter back, who like Michael Winter hadn't done shit since Death Wish, basically. Like his career is kind of like spiraling. So they're like, all right, fine, we'll bring we'll bring him back in. And Austin, if you want to like add details to that afterwards, you can because I know there's much more to that story. But here's the thing: like, God knows what Menachem's Death Wish 2 might have looked like. Like I don't think they would have garnered the same legitimacy uh, had they done the movie with Menachem over Michael Winter, even though like Michael Winter like went over the top with the rape scenes. Of course, they were like, I said it, Mike, but it was uh, it was way over the top. But who knows what you it might have been like so schlocky that it just got put on the shelf and they're like, oh, that's another canon movie. It's another Golan Globus. But they had this guy at the helm and. It actually turned out to be a pretty decent movie, did pretty well at the box office. Then on top of that whole thing, which this is the thing that I th I don't think a lot of people realize this. But we get Michael Winner. Uh, he directs the movie. His neighbor at the time happens to play music. So they they wanted Isaac Hayes. And he was like, no, 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 I got, you know, my neighbor. Uh, I, I talked to him about it. he's interested in doing this. His neighbor is Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin. So Jimmy Page ends up doing the music for Death Wish 2, which is fucking amazing. But anyhow, it's the movie that it basically puts canon on the map. It's like, oh, we're we're not making Happy Hooker goes to Hollywood anymore. We're making real movies. You guys saw this one in the 70s is big hit. We have the sequel to it. Take us seriously. And it kind of did that. And this this kind of laid the groundwork for 83, 84, you know, until that, that downfall. And then of course you get 
two, three, four, and five, where, you know, by five, Bronson's probably already like in his 70s, obviously, because that was like in the 90s. He was 61 when he did this movie. Uh, but yeah, and and also made Charles Bronson a superstar vigilante because he really wasn't at that time. Like, I think we look at it now, we kind of take it for granted that, you know, Charles Bronson was like this big star. He really he wasn't. He wasn't. He was a huge star overseas. He was a huge star in Europe because he did all these spaghetti westerns and, uh, you know, these these I don't want to call them low budget, but like, you know, European budgeted movies. And he was a big deal over there. But here he was more of a, like an ensemble guy. And yeah, like when he was in The Great Escape. Exactly. He was in The Great Escape and he was in a bunch of movies like that. And then he he did these movies and he became this larger than life persona. And that's because of canon. So I give you Death Wish 2. Nice. Right. All right. So let's throw it over to Austin Trunick for his verdict on the movies round. Well, Death Wish 2 is was canon's first big big success really like you said it, it sort of it made mainstream audiences look at them their their only really real hit before that was enter the ninja and that was still playing at 42nd street these you know grindhouse <laughs> yeah um it was a martial arts movie so people weren't going to take that seriously but this was this was a big deal for them and it created this it led to this great relationship with charles bronson that was it's so really Charles Bronson it would have been his retirement years, but he could make a movie with Canon every year for a million bucks a pop. He could force them to bring his guys on his wife. Like they cast his wife. <laughs> they could cast his buddies. He had a lot of actors that he liked from prior films that he'd be like the, he, he essentially produced a lot of these in, in a capacity, in some capacity. Um, Death wish Two. Unfortunately, it's not my favorite of the Canon sequels. Um, the the soundtrack is awesome but death wish 4 <laughs> death wish 4 is my personal favorite just because it's pretty wacky john john p ryan is a very weird villain it's him pitting these different mob factions against each other death wish 3 has the crazy ending has the most zany insane violence which is the last michael winner yes yes um but yeah death wish 2 is not my not my personal personal favorite even though you you do have the great jimmy page working on the soundtrack it's actually it's interesting because the guy who wrote it um david engelbach wanted to remove his name from it because the one the version he had written had had uh bronson going it you know going off into the country and sort of meeting these survivalists to arm him with all of these crazy machine guns and body armor and things like that. And he wrote it as sort of a, sort of a progression from what, what he thinks Paul Kersey would do, how he would grow and develop from the first film. If he, if this were to happen to him again, he would go over the deep end and become this armored superhero that he is essentially in three, but when Michael Winter got it and Michael Winter and Cannon work together, they, they just wanted death wish one again. So it's basically the same plot from death wish. Death Wish one, even his poor poor daughter getting attacked a second time, it's awful. <laughs> but yeah, the, my 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 personal thing with it is the the violence is a little too 
hard to get through at the beginning. In the, for yeah, me. the first yeah. 30 minutes are rough. And then after yeah. that, it's, yeah. it's just like the rest of the series. Right. So I'm, I'm choosing these based on the ones that this category based on what I would want to sit down and watch first if given this stack of vhs tapes yeah you're you're not dave schultz i'm not going to argue with you so like whatever you whatever you're going to do you got but yeah so it takes to mike and delta force and delta force is a a big giant action movie directed by menachem galan it has pound for pound the most oscar winners to ever appear in one canon movie even if they're just sitting on an airplane being kidnapped or held hostage. The the um, it's two hours long, which is very long for a for a canon film. Menachem was always very adamant about a film having to be ninety five under ninety five minutes, so they could squeeze more screenings. But he could break the rule himself, I guess. And yeah, Delta Force is one of these films that the last hour, once they get off the plane, the first hour of it is Robert Forster of all people as uh an arab terrorist <laughs> which is it, it was the time. 80s they could get away with that i guess back then but it's it's all the drama on the plane which was which was one of the craziest parts to me about that movie was kind of ripped from the headlines there was a plane that was hijacked really just eight months before the movie came out and certain things like the the soldier, American soldier getting shot and thrown out of the plane was on the news. That actually happened. And it's kind of weird that they used that to make a Chuck Norris movie. <laughs> I, I, feel, I feel bad for all those people that just got right out of that situation. But yeah, the last hour, once they got off the plane, you've got Chuck Norris, you've got Steve James, you've got Bill Wallace, all these great canon actors and chuck norris rides this magical rocket launching superbike, which is just as cool as can be just for me is it takes it takes a while to get to that point and if i were going to watch a chuck norris canon movie there are many that get straight to him just kicking and shooting guys with two two uzis at the same time fired from his hips and they get to that a little faster than delta force so if I'm going to choose the movies, Ninja 3 is, if we want to get to the action right away, the first 20 minutes of that film are crazier than entire, entire series of movies. It's one ninja running onto a golf course. It's never explained why. And just slaughtering everyone there. The golfers, the, the police that show up, there's helicopters, there's cars jumping into lakes. It's just crazy. He gets shot a million times. Um, and that that's this 20 minute long, insane action sequence ends with the injured evil ninja stumbling over to this telephone repair lady who's up on a up on a pole, Lucinda Dickey, and possessing her. So she becomes a, an evil ninja. She's like a, a wear ninja, I guess, when she falls asleep. <laughs> Her arcade, her arcade machine in her apartment comes to like shoots laser beams at her, at her and turns her into an evil, evil ninja. And she goes out getting revenge on all the people that killed the, the original ninja. This movie is crazy because it's a little bit, I mean, it's a ninja movie. It's a little bit flash dance in there. There's a lot of aerobics in this, this film <laughs> there. Uh, it's part of the exorcist. It's, it's crazy. You have this just 
scene where she's spinning around as the exorcist is trying to dispel the the, the evil ninja from her. And you get Sho Kasugi, who unfortunately is only in a small part of that film. Yeah. The reason, one of the reasons why they had to have her possessed by a ninja is Sho Kasugi didn't believe a you could have a female that a female could be a ninja could be that skilled and he was kind of upset about it but meanwhile Menachem that was his idea like the whole thing is he wanted girl ninja girl ninja yeah. and that was the impetus for the film so thus he wouldn't believe that a woman could be a ninja but she could be possessed by a ninja a male ninja and have those skills so that's sort of where that storyline came in that whole movie is crazy though crazy 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 and just the first 20 minutes alone i if i were to i actually like when we're, when we're done talking i want to go watch the first 20 minutes of <laughs> ninja 3 and it'll inevitably lead to me watching the whole thing to me it always seemed like something that got lost in translation like we're gonna have this dancer and she's gonna be on a pole or oh, a stripper pole no telephone pole <laughs> And she's going to have a ninja, like, inside of her. Like, sex? <laughs> no, possession. <laughs> she had she had one too many jobs. Yeah. yeah. She was also an aerobics instructor. It looked like jazzercise or something she was doing. <laughs> and then she gets in that fight with the dudes in the alley who were, like, trying to pick her up. She fucks them all up. But the cop is there, which is kind of like a mixture of, uh, like, a scene from Perfect. With Jamie yeah. Lee Curtis and John Travolta. Like he's trying, he's at the class. Like it was just, there's so many different parts to it. It's so crazy. It's a fun movie, you know, and it's one of those early girl power films. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, go check it out. Ninja and 3. hey, and if you're worried about continuity or jumping into the series with the third one, don't. <laughs> there, There's no relation other than Shokasugi is a ninja, good or bad ninja in each of them. It's what's your yeah, what's you your favorite right of the three? My personal favorite, I actually have it here, but Revenge of the Ninja. Yeah, it's a lot of that has to do with nostalgia. Like this, this cover, amazing. I remember seeing oh, at yeah. the store and the metal always, mask. Yeah, I mean, this here's here's a ninja. I'll describe for people that are listening on the podcast version of this, but it's a ninja who seems to be flying miles above a city he's definitely at airplane level i don't know if he was dropped out of a helicopter well, or ninjas could do that yeah yeah i mean especially in, in ninja 3 like they have all sorts of magic we learn <laughs> but yeah this movie is gonzo as well uh in a different way from ninja 3 but it's got it's got scenes where chokasugi and his sidekick uh friend at this point are they go to a playground, a children's playground, which is a known hangout for gangsters or of course. For, yeah. like yeah. so they go there to interrogate some guys, and there's a great and the, the bad guys in that scene just for some reason happen to be dressed like the village people. And you have you have a cowboy, you have you just it's it's crazy. And they have this great fight on a kid's playground using all the playground equipment. Can you imagine that conversation with Monaco? He's like, okay, we need to have uh a cowboy, a construction worker, uh, an Indian, and a ninja in this fight. You understand? Oh yeah, it's oh so that's that's another movie. Is the 
the last 10 minutes of that film are just one ninja fight. It's Shokasugi versus the um the the silver mask yeah like yeah. evil demon ninja on a rooftop in salt lake city and in, in beautiful salt lake city just a very interesting film location lots of ninjas in salt lake city yeah of course oh, yeah. they're mormon yeah. actually you didn't know that about ninjas but <laughs> they are it's 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 just one badass ninja on ninja fight that goes on for 10 minutes and it it Next to the first 20 minutes of Ninja 3 is just one of my favorite action sequences anywhere. That movie also has uh, Shokasugi's son, uh, King Kasugi, playing a little boy who also gets his own fight scenes. It's got his mother, this elderly Asian mother, who gets her fight a fight scene as well. And it's clearly a stunt person stepping in for this elderly actress <laughs> every time she has to do flips and things like that. But it's just it hits the sweet spot because it's the, a wacky canon movie and it's weird in all the right ways, but it's, it's, there's also spectacular action. Uh, Sam Furstenberg is a very good action director. Yes. And there are Shokasugi and it's, it's done at that, at that budget where you can tell that these stuntmen and actors were almost taking their lives in their own hands. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for a lot of the shots, like it's like a Jackie Chan movie at that point, you know, right. these guys, were risking getting hurt to just get a really awesome awesome shot so it it, it hits it's the perfect balance between a great being a great action movie and also being a crazy canon movie for me can we all agree then that, that enter the ninja with franco nero is the worst <laughs> oh but his his dubbing in that his, one is his so good. well can you imagine they didn't dub him <laughs> You would have been like, I yeah. don't buy this. What is this dude, Italian? Like, is Italian, <laughs> is Italian white ninja? Like, what? It's, I yeah. don't know. That one, every time I try to watch it, I try to give it the benefit of the doubt. And I've seen it so many times, and I'm just like, nah, I can't. I just don't buy it. Yeah, the next two I love. The the first one, and that one did well. Yeah. The box office. Yeah, yeah I'll I'll stand behind Canon's first seven ninja movies. <laughs> if we want to do the Shokasu the three Shokasugis and then American Ninja one through four. I've I'll happily watch any of those anytime. American Ninja Five, I have to be in the right mood for. Yeah, the, like once as what's the one without Dudikoff? Was that three? Yeah, three was the first one without Dudikoff. That one was kind of eh, I wasn't really into it. Maybe it's because Dudikoff wasn't in it. Um what what do you think? Obviously, we know Mark won, Mark won. Congratulations, Mark! Congratulations! Congratulations! Oh, I didn't win. Nineteen eighty four won. Nineteen eighty four won. Um, <laughs> good year. <laughs> Nineteen eighty four did all the work. What like how? And I don't even know what the story is. Like, why didn't Chuck Norris do American Ninja? Because like that's what they were putting in all the trades. Do you know this? Like right. in all the trades, they were putting Chuck Norris in for American Ninja. Why didn't he end up doing that one? Well, when he was attached to American Ninja, it's this is a this is another crazy canon story. He didn't want to do a ninja movie. He didn't want to have the mask covered. He was also trying to get out of martial arts, purely martial arts films. He was trying to become a more well-rounded action actor, as, as at least as well. He wanted as to be a, like a be. like a ranger or something. Yeah, yeah. He was, <laughs> he was he was on the ranger trajectory. But he wanted to fire more guns and he didn't want to, he was also getting old. He didn't start with Canon until he was in his forties. Right. 
And so by that point he was looking, he's like, do I want to just be, do I want to be trying to do flips and stuff when I'm, and of course there, he didn't want to wear the mask the whole time because he's a, he's a movie star and you can't cover Chuck Norris's face when you have a face. I kind (laughs) of like, I know the one thing you just mentioned that I never even thought about because uh, Joe, who has no last name in American Ninja, Michael Dudikoff, he's a private. So that would have been fucking weird. Like Chuck Norris is like a 40 year old private. I'm sure they would have like redone the story somehow, but like, that would, yeah, that would have been uh, pretty odd. Yeah. So American Ninja, you see trade pictures, you see a picture of Canon took out all these big full page ads announcing American Ninja starring Chuck Norris. And it's a picture of him, uh, basically his head cut out and put onto one of their stuntmen from Ninja three his body is and then sort of doing the ninja kick and canon had come to the right uh, the writer james bruner and chuck norris and said we want we want a movie called Menachem said i want a movie called american ninja that's going to be my next ninja film they chuck didn't want to do a ninja film so he worked with james bruner the writer and came up with basically the plot of what what became invasion usa which my t-shirt here great movie and it was this CIA operative who has to stop this invasion of the United States. Basically, it was it was Invasion USA. The only connection was that his code name was American Ninja, and that's how they tried to pull one over on Menachem. Menachem saw the script, read it, loved it, but his thing was you cannot call it American Ninja, and he was right because they yeah. they, Wait, they, what, they are the guys. What was his name in Invasion? Wasn't it like Matt Stone or? Matt Hunter. Matt Hunter. I knew it. it was like some <laughs> badass name. Yeah. So he, I, Menachem got, saw the American Ninja script at that time, had him change the title and sent it right into production and it became Invasion USA. And in the meantime, James Silk, they, they, they get another script and for American Ninja and was the one with Dudikoff that they eventually shot with Dudikoff. So... Yeah, when, when, when he was going to do American Ninja, that turned into Invasion USA. Still great. And then they got to blow a yeah. lot of stuff up because there was like how like all those houses were going to get blown up anywhere, or like destroyed anyway. Yeah. They got so, to destroy a real neighborhood. Yeah, so they got to destroy <laughs> so <cool>. everything. <laughs> Fucking yeah, great. that is production value. That, See? Canon. Boy. Building relationships. <laughs> like, oh, you guys are going to yeah. destroy that? Can we just blow it up? All right. That, <laughs> The mall that Chuck Norris is hanging out the side of the pickup truck and like shooting guys with the Uzis, that that was a mall that was uh, shut down for renovation. So again, Canon got lucky that they could they they were going to rip rip out all the interiors and redo it anyway, so they could screw it up however they pleased. That is amazing. So what other are there any other uh, like movies or castings that? would have happened or were supposed to happen that you know about that just didn't come to fruition? There are so many, so many. So this is actually for the third book, which is down the road. I'm not making any promises when that'll be yet. That There's a lot of work to be done, but By I want to have a section. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Christmas oh, it's ter- terrifying. But I want to do a section called Cancelled Canon, which will be all the movies they announced because Canon, their strategy for making movies was they would put out these catalogs or buy these trade ads and have, you know, 
40 films in there and they would just be mock-ups of artwork. Sometimes there would be a name, like a, a director or like a star's name attached. A lot of time there wasn't, usually just a tagline right. and a piece of dummy artwork. And they would take it out to the markets. They would take it out to the film festivals and they would sell it internationally. And once they had a certain amount in mind, committed people to buy it, they would take that money to the bank. They would get the loan, the, the promises to make it, and they would make the film. So it was a lot of throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing if, seeing if anything sticks. What's, what's amazing though is probably for every one movie they made, there were two or three movies or like versions of those movies that weren't made, that they made ads for. And it's incredible. And there, there are um, some, some big name stars that actually had deals with Canon. One was they were going to make La Brava with the Elmore Leonard, Elmore Leonard novel, La Brava with Dustin Hoffman. Wow. And wow. Dustin Hoffman, his whole thing was, because he was a huge star yeah. at that time. He hadn't made much when they were talking about it. He hadn't, he had taken a little break after Tootsie and Cannon was able to get him to agree to this. But his one deal is he wanted to be the highest paid actor in Hollywood. Of course. Which Cannon had just made Sylvester Stallone for over the top by paying him $12 million to, to, to agree to star in that. So... Yeah, they basically just had to make the same deal with slightly more than what that they had made with Stallone for Dustin Hoffman. Cannon got in trouble though. Dustin Hoffman had a deal where his in his contract where they couldn't use his likeness, they couldn't put out ads or anything without him approving it. And so Cannon, of course, as soon as they get the deal in place, they take out a full page ad welcoming <laughs> Dustin Hoffman to the Cannon family. Kibbutz. Dustin Hoffman gets mad. Yeah, <laughs> they get he gets mad. He warns him. Does it again. Still, Dustin Hoffman's like, okay, it's still I can be the highest paid actor in Hollywood. They do it a third time, <laughs> and finally he's like, screw it, screw it. If I can't trust these guys to not, <laughs> I'm doing Rain my name. Man. Yeah. <laughs> so he 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 ducked right out of it. So that was that was one of the ones they were going to make Suspicion with Al Pacino. The, they had Christopher Walken originally signed up to do River of Death, and he was replaced with Michael Dudikoff later on. Um, Whoopi Goldberg, John Travolta, just all these. Walken would have been right. a oh my god, <laughs> Walken would have been a canon staple if they'd done that. Holy shit! They they did get him for Puss in Boots. If you haven't seen their canon movie tale version of Puss in Boots. It's Christopher Walken as the cat and he tap dances and he sings and Christopher Walken it's... should have been an electric boogaloo. I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> that would have been amazing. Uh, any, I love Christopher Walken, but anytime a director doesn't find an excuse for him to tap dance in their movie, yep. was a wait, no matter what movie it was, it's a wasted opportunity. Oh man. Any other, like, cause I love those stories when there's, there are so close, like Spider-Man, was it Dudikoff mm. that was going to be Spider-Man? Dudikoff was attached to everything. Everything that they were doing for a while. He was going to play Superman when for a little while when they were thinking about doing a Superman 5. Um, yeah, he's he was attached for a while. They had a, a another a model who actually see in one of the old Spider-Man covers. It's one of the only 
Amazing Spider-Man covers or Spectacular Spider-Man, one of those where it's a photo cover and it's a guy standing uh, with his, he's got his spider suit on and somebody's seeing him through the window as Peter Parker, he's got his mask off. And yeah, Spider-Man was a movie that they tried for years and years and years to, to get made, but uh, Toby Hooper was originally the first announced director that they had. Can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> Toby Hooper's Spider-Man. <laughs> Would have been amazing. Oh, the stories for that one are crazy too, because you have the, the Monaco gone bought the rights to Spider-Man when Marvel was in yeah, trouble and they, they were, were in dire straits. Yep. They bought Captain America as well. And they were going to make Captain America with Michael Winner for for a while, which would have been crazy. Guaranteed to be a rape in that movie. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. In the it, that that would have that would have been his origin story, I'm sure, in the canon Captain America. But yeah, Spider Man. He bought the rights, thinking that Spider Man wasn't a superhero, but a like a wear spider. It was like Teen Wolf, but Peter Parker would turn into a hairy spider thing. So he didn't understand the rights when they when they bought it. But yeah, Toby Hooper, Josito was going to make it for a while. Finally ended up with Albert Pune, who directed Dangerously Close, Down Twisted, Cyborg, Alien from L.A. And they built some of the sets. They built some of the New York sets. And they, when they were basically out of money at their, at their worst point in the late 80s, they had all this money sunk into the sets for Spider-Man and costumes for Masters of the Universe 2. They couldn't make either. They bounced their check to Mattel. That that whole deal canceled. They go to Albert and they say, hey, can you do something with these? So he takes the costumes from Master Universe 2, takes some actors, some of his usual like stable of actors, takes Van Damme, who they have a contract with, and makes Cyborg. And so, yeah, when you're seeing the very rainy fight between... Um, that he's there with Vincent Klein at the end. Yep. Uh, you have see some of these like buildings and it looks like a abandoned apocalyptic city. Those are the Spider-Man sets. That was going to be the daily bugle that they're having their fight in front of, which is crazy. I've got one, one quick prop I can grab. If you give me one. Yeah, second. go for it. <laughs> yeah. That is wild. I would have watched it. I probably would have oh owned it. Oh my God. Yes. So, Canon usually, yeah, they, they didn't spend money on things, but they were so excited about their Spider-Man deal that they had some of these made up. Oh, wow. Mike, wow. Mike, that's it's, all you, bro. Oh, yeah. Look at it's that. got the <laughs> Canon copyright 1985. They said they, yeah, I think Toby Hooper got one. I think they sent them to a couple of the Marvel top execs at the time to celebrate the deal. Yorm and Menachem had them. So, but... How, yeah, this is how <laughs> did you get your hands on that? Uh there there was a um former Marvel Marvel employee uh auctioning off some old old stuff years ago. <laughs> wow. And I had to I had to jump on that because yeah, dude, that's amazing. I don't know how many there are. There's probably not many. I you know what I'd love to get? Did you ever see the uh the canon like jogging suits? That Menachem yeah. and yeah. I, I want, want those, those so bad, yeah. dude. I want to show up at the yeah. studio wearing that. <laughs> That's like that would be so sick. Where just there are eBay that right now. 
Where can we find that? I'm going to do that. <laughs> there right had now. to have been a bunch of those out there because they sent all of their employees that were at the Cannes Film Festival to, they were wearing those. There's a great like company photo where it's all these people wearing oh these matching. Oh my God. Dude, I, I would rock that to ShopRite. <laughs> <laughs> Just to see, nobody would know. Like we're the only losers that, they'd be like, oh, Cannon Film. Nobody knows Cannon. Like when I talk to people like that I know, they're like, yeah. I don't even know who. I'm like, can you know, like they had the logo and it came together, and they're like, no, nah, I don't know, no. I don't know what you're talking about. And then you list off the movies, and they still don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like you still you've seen Over the Top, like who? Over the Top, your fucking arm wrestling movie, <laughs> huh? Nah, yeah. Which is an another one. It's an amazing movie, and that was something. And I think I read this in your book or, or I read it somewhere else that was sat on for years. Mm-hmm. Like he wanted to do that for like five or six years before it actually got started. Yeah, that that script dates back to before Golden Globus bought Canon, but it was one of the very first things that they jumped on. They actually um, the writer who wrote it ended up writing Death Wish 2 for them. So they had had the over the script top at least since 80, 81, because they were discussing it with different actors. And yeah, over the top has a very, very long production history. But even even once they got Stallone, they signed Stallone for the their record breaking deal in 84. And that movie still didn't come out till 87 because they had to find a way to finance it. They didn't have they didn't have the 12 million dollars to pay Stallone. They gave him a (laughs) 500 grand retainer. And went around trying to find find financing for that one because unlike unlike their other movies where they already had the budget, already made more than the budget on the film before they made the film, the they took that one around and they're like, hey, we need 25 million to make this like arm wrestling, (laughs) truck truck driving arm wrestling movie. And a lot of places were like, ooh, I'm not giving you millions of dollars for that. Even. All they had to do <laughs> was play Beat Me Halfway. Come on, Mike. <laughs> Across the, the sky. sky. <laughs> if they just played that, the money would have just fell out of pockets. I don't like I don't get it. It's such <laughs> an amazing movie. Every time I watch it, I find something new about the movie. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's so bad. That it's amazing. Like <laughs> the the looks of Stallone arm wrestling, like he's walking around in wet socks like that. You know, it's, it's just the greatest cinema of all time. Do you think now in 2021, any production company could come out and do the stuff that they did then? Like come out and try to pre-sell and you know get these stars on board and do any of that because i mean what they did was who was doing that yeah i mean they weren't the first company to do that but they they did it better than better than anyone they were able to really take that business model over the top as as we were saying but today the markets changed i don't know that you could do it the exact same way they did but you also have, I think Canon, a company like Canon or Canon specifically would have thrived if they existed today because you now have, where there aren't the markets in the 
international territories and video and cable, you have streaming services. Yeah. And I'm sure they would have happily took it, taken a movie to the highest bidder at that point. Oh yeah. For the streaming services. Cause we see a lot, we, we get a lot of them mailed to us, like a lot of the, like mm -hmm. independent stuff. They're nowhere close to the level of Canon. Like I watch it mm -hmm. and I'm like, if I watch it once, I'll never watch it again. Like there's not, not yeah. one movie that I see that, get sent to us where I'm like, oh, this is like, if it was over the top that they mailed me, I'd watch it 85 times. <laughs> but like a lot of them I get, I'm like, I, I can't watch this again. This is it. No, they're horrible. Yeah. I just, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know what, what was in the pudding that they were making. There was, it was so different. <laughs> they got us so hooked on these 90 minute movies. And I think we, Mike and I were talking about this as well about like, I can't watch anything over 90 minutes. And I think it's because of Canon. Like where after 90 minutes, I'm kind of like, eh, all right, are we done? Like, is, can you wrap this up? Like Marvel movies now, I can't even get through. I'm like, all right, come on. Let's just finish it. Get to the end. We know where this is going. Yeah, I think I think Canon didn't overthink things. That's the, the beauty of it. Because they work too fast. Yep. If you got took a movie into Canon and you got a deal, your production was set like eight weeks. You're going to start in eight weeks. And I mean, everything nowadays takes years for to happen, but Canon, they were burning the candle at both ends. They just had to keep going to feed this crazy monster that they'd, they had created. And yeah, that's how you get break into electric boogaloo where <laughs> the first one's a hit you have the second one's all corny and like campy. And, and and they've already announced the that it's one, man. i do I, yeah i like it as well but i think that's because at the time we were like six years old and it right it was fine but if we were like 16 which was the target market of the audience for the first one we'd be like what is this kid shit you're you're spewing you know <laughs> so this yeah the speed at which they worked break into electric boogaloo came out just over five months almost six months after the first one yeah in December. which is crazy to put that whole movie in a giant dance dance feature texas chainsaw massacre 2 was written on the set which is crazy that movie started <laughs> shooting in they were shooting in may june july of 86 it came out at the beginning of august in 86 which is just crazy when they didn't even have a script in March, they didn't have a cast by that time. And it, but Canon, they, they had obligations. They had already sold the movie. They had to deliver it or else they would have to pay fines, which is just, they weren't going to pay fines. That's <laughs> just release what you got. It and that wasn't a terrible movie either. It's also pretty campy, but it's not bad. It's not like the original, obviously, mm -hmm. but <laughs> It's got its place. It's better than the one after. What was the one with Matthew McConaughey and uh, Renee Zellweger? Like next gen, new generation. Oh god, that yeah. one's a piece of yeah. shit. So like, it's light years ahead of that. Um, awesome. Before you go, like, take tell first off, tell people what they can expect. And I think I we try to sell it up a little bit from from the first book, but um, kind of tell them what they can expect from the next one as well. Well, yeah, the first book covers 1980 through 84. It really starts with Golden Globus buying the company, this failing New York uh, production company, and really their rise 
they have some hits like Enter the Ninja and Death Wish 2 leading into 84 when they have huge hits like Missing in Action was the number one film. Breakin' was a huge film for them. And then also people taking them seriously at that point. You have John Cassavetti signing up to make a picture with them. They'd already on steals with Robert Altman at that point. Andre Konchalovsky, the movie's coming out in 85. And yeah, people really coming up to respect them. So it's, it's really, I think the first one is the first volume is kind of your underdog, your scrappy, this company going out and making all these crazy exploitation films, but sneaking in. That's why I didn't win the game because I, I was way <laughs> underdog. 82 is a tough year. <laughs> you, you had a, I, yeah, I did. You had, it, you was, hand it was hard, but yeah, so it, it's, it's really the rise and it really, it ends at 84, which was their most successful year, which is crazy because their biggest and best known movies come in the years just following that. Right. But the, the time that they were healthiest as a company was really at the end of 84 when every, like the article you mentioned very early in this uh, contest, but yeah, they were, they were on the cusp of actually sort of becoming a mini major is what they called it. 8537 is, it covers the shortest fans, uh, span of years. That's going to be what's in volume two. And, but it, it's their most prolific. Mike mentioned that they had put out 60 films in 86 and they had this just production slate that was insane. Yeah, again, and almost a movie in theaters almost every weekend and some weekends, just multiple canon movies competing against each other, which is just very crazy smart. to wrap your head yeah. around. <laughs> yeah. But it also, it covers these really the best known canon movies, but you have your super, but also some of the craziest production um, stories because they were spending more and more money. You have Toby Hooper's films for them. You have Life Force, Invaders from Mars, um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. You have Superman 4 when they bought the rights from the previous producers and got Christopher Reeve to come back after saying he would never do it. And then of course, not having a budget to actually make the movie once they had everyone <laughs> there master universe with uh Dolph Lundgren's in there over the top is in there which is a movie that took years years and years and years for them to put together and yeah you have some, some of the great Chuck Norris movies you have the whole Delta Force trilogy is covered in here Invasion USA and American Ninja these are the years that Mike uh Michael Dudikoff canon made made him into an action star he was this kind of lesser known comedy actor who was in bachelor party like one of tom hanks buddies and had a character on happy days but he um He's became uh, yeah he became the american ninja He's joe and it it turned him into an action star for the next you know next long decades of his career so it's 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 a fun book this one's a really fun one to put together it's much it's bigger, it's significantly bigger than the first book, which is kind of crazy for me to wrap my brain around because I'm looking at it in a document now. But once it's printed out, it's it's going to be pretty a pretty hefty book. And your first book that... is 527 pages out. <laughs> How many pages is this one? Oh gosh, it's probably about 25 to 30 percent larger. You so. know what? It's a quick read though. Like I got through like chapters very fast, where I was like, damn, I'm already here. So it goes fast. So <laughs> don't get scared that it's that many pages. You'll you'll be into it if if you like these movies. And and my my dream way of people reading it would be 
you know, they watch a Canon movie, they find it on YouTube or Tubi, oh, which has so many now. And then, yeah, then they check out the chapter and they find the history behind it afterwards. So that, that, that's, that's the way I would, I would love to recommend to people to read it that way. But yeah, 8537, the other thing is interviews. And like a lot of people, now that the first book was out there, were able, were willing to come out of the woodwork and do interviews. So I've got a lot of, a lot of, a lot more interviews in here. A lot of people that, some people I didn't get for the first one necessarily, some absences that will be appearing in the second book. Uh, so it's, it's exciting. I'm, I'm stoked to get it out there just because I'm in the least fun editing phase right now, but also it's, there's some really fun stories. Oh, Eventually there'll be a third volume <laughs> and that's, that was Canon's kind of the, the dark period when they were out of money and kind of direct to video era yeah. at that point. Do you, are you going to touch getting, on the whole like Michael Ferretti thing with the, yeah, there'll be, yeah, the, the legal troubles and things like that. <laughs> I'll get in, get into there, but it's, it's also to, to sort of make up for that. I, it'll also have the section on all the announced projects and, all the information I can find out, the all Spider-Man in there. And you'll have Toby Hooper's Pinocchio starring Lee Marvin. That's a great Canon project that never happened. Um, what stuff like that. Is he going to be Geppetto? I hope. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Lee Marvin as Pinocchio. <laughs> oh, is it sci-fi? I was kind of hoping he was going to be Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> He's got such an uplifting personality. <laughs> Did you get to talk to dude? I'd love to get Dudikoff on here to be a judge. Um, did you get to talk to Dudikoff? I've spoken to him. Yes. Oh <laughs> man, how was he? He's the nicest guy. Oh god, the nicest guy. We got to get Dudikoff on yeah. here. Like I've wanted, <laughs> I've tried. Like yeah, I don't know. I don't know who his representation is. Sometimes they don't go directly, and I I, I wasn't able to get him directly. So I got to figure out who his reps are love to get him on here but dude he's he has a lot of canon movies they he really carried them into the 90s he was their star then yeah Yeah. he was their guy but dude thank you so much for coming on and uh (laughs) just tell people where they can get the book and and plug your stuff and all that on your way out great yeah my book is anywhere you can order at any any of the bookstores online channels amazon's any very easy place to get it then yeah online just i'm i'm on i'm canon film guide on both twitter and facebook and i post a lot of my stuff from my canon collection i've got boxes and boxes of stuff fill in my closet over here that i've collected over the years and only a small portion of it i can use them i've got 200 images i think in the first book and that's barely stuff that i have in my collection but i, I like to pull that those things out and share them on there and it's, it's a fun way just to keep the conversation going because people can ask me questions on there. I'm always happy to answer stuff and, and show off things that I've, I've found over the years and I'm still finding every day. Excellent. What's your, uh, what's your social media address? Like, or on Twitter? Just or Canon Film Guide. Canon Film Guide. All, yeah. Canon, Canon Film Guide. It's both Twitter and Facebook that way. Awesome. I appreciate you coming on here. And as soon as you're ready to do volume two, Let's do this all over again. We'll bring out the new years and hopefully I draw a better year than 1982. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. This has been a blast. Thanks for having me.
All right. Thank you, Austin, for being the judge for this episode. And thank you for watching along on YouTube. Now, if you just listen to the podcast, head over to our YouTube page and you can subscribe to the show there. Make sure you hit that little bell so it notifies you when a new episode is available. But if you've missed an episode, you can catch all of this over on our new website. That's DuelingDecades.com, your one-stop shop for everything from the show. You can get the links for the video there. You can subscribe on your favorite platform. So check that out. And until next time, Duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Podcast New York. Be heard.